Hey, Linda, are we good to go? We have liftoff, but no pro- <laughs> no promises we won't get interrupted. Oh, that's so true. Having children around the house all the time. Right, I've got one child connected to um, online school at the moment, and my youngest has just emptied a bag of toys all over the place, so uh, should be okay. Hey, sweetheart. Uh, here he comes, like clockwork. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Mommy, where's Papa? Uh, he's in the kitchen. Okay. Hey, honey, can you can you close the door? Okay. Love you. Love you too. Okay, so let's do this. Welcome back to the Checkpoint podcast with me, Anna Cunningham in London. And me, Linda Freund in Barcelona. We're two busy moms, obviously, and journalists. And we're glad to have you on board with us on the Checkpoint podcast. So how are we all doing as we continue this? Well, I guess it's kind of the new normal, isn't it? This parenting through a pandemic at the moment. Okay, this will never feel normal, (laughs) I have to say. Well, no, but for now, for now, I guess. Hmm. Uh, Do you know, Linda, like you, I've kind of been losing track of weeks. I had to to check myself for what week I'm actually on. And it's uh, week seven of 12 on the inside for me at the moment, because as I mentioned before, I'm following these uh, government guidelines telling me to stay in for 12 weeks because I'm classed as extremely vulnerable with my asthma. But I have been tempted to head outside. And let me just tell you something that happened last night. We have a milkman who delivers the milk every, every, I think, three times a week he delivers the milk. And uh, he's delivering at night at the moment. So I heard the the van and I thought, oh, I'll go and pick it up rather than leaving it on the doorstep. And I stuck my head outside. and I, I don't know who frightened the other more, me or the milkman, but we kind of suddenly, oh, hello, you know, and it was it was sort of, you know, my first contact with somebody on the outside, as it were. And it was it was a bit strange. I mean, he kind of handed me the milk and I was like, oh, you know, social distancing. But um yeah, it's it's getting used to the new way of things. And uh, I just wonder how we're all coping. And um, do you know what? It's getting quite tedious for the children, I think. How about you? Because you have had a bit of bit of normality, I guess. Well, first, I want to go back to the fact that you have a milkman. That concept (laughs) seems totally retro to me, like 1950s Americana. We do not have one of those. I don't think I ever have. Is that common in the UK? Do you know, it used to be when I was growing up, it used to be that everybody had a milkman. And then, of course, we all switched to buying plastic bottles in supermarkets. And now we've gone back to it. The rise in the demand for the milkman and the milk deliveries has just, you know, rocketed. And yes, people are getting milk deliveries again. I mean, maybe it's a good thing. You know, we're switching to glass instead of plastic. It's a whole new world. Wow. Well, so here in Spain, uh, social distancing when it comes to deliveries, it's definitely uh, respected. So we actually, uh, the delivery person actually sticks the package in our elevator and we run to time it and collect it. So we're really not having that face-to-face contact anymore. Okay. But you have managed to get outside, haven't you, With with your son? How was that? Wow. So yeah, just this past weekend, uh, we got out our first time. 
uh, in 44 days. So yes, we were counting the days. And it was interesting because when our six-year-old first walked out the door with his mask on, he had his hands clenched together like this shy kid going to his first day of school. You know, it, it was very sweet to see. And I, and I could tell there was some dissonance there, but in no time he was on his scooter, zipping down the empty sidewalks. And I have to say, it just warmed my heart to hear kids giggles again. Like not just, you know, the outside being associated with that, not just the functional utilitarian act of, you know, averting your gaze or getting your groceries, taking out your trash, but, but real life, just kids everywhere. And, and that evening, <laughs> a bunch of parents, uh, friends throughout uh, Spain, we all joined in on a Zoom call to celebrate and toast and cheer, you know, the, the fact that our children have some semblance of, of freedom of outdoor life. And, you know, it's not, it's not just getting the kids out. It's really a mental break, uh, my friends Marshall and, and Kieran said, when we all joined together. I got um, about 45 minutes alone in the house today for the first time in 44 days. <laughs> you know what? I did too. And I just laid there. I laid there. I checked my Instagram. I did nothing. It yeah. was like, I took my shoes off. I did nothing. I got in a sleeping bag. It was just like, I'm going to chill out for these 50 minutes that these two people are running around this crazy town. So the fear has really worn off for many people uh, as we slowly reemerge and the numbers uh, start to flatten, especially here in Spain. And, and this past weekend, one concern is that there were a number of uh, families congregating, grandparents included. Uh, and as the parks are closed, many were in these small squares and they were congested. And so in some cases, they were not able to practice social distancing and kids were, were hugging. Now, not everybody. A lot of people were respecting the need to maintain that six feet, uh, six feet of distance. However, you know, there, there is some question about what will this look like in the days to come? And this overarching question that many of us are facing about the need for sanity, human connection, and pitting that against public health. Social responsibility becomes a very tricky thing, and we're just hopeful that uh, the kids can continue to go outside, we can continue to make this work, and that people sort of adjust and figure out what social distancing looks like, sort of juxtaposed with the beautiful thing about Spain, which is this very social, uh, very interactive, uh, very interpersonal lifestyle. It's really interesting because we have seen uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who has now recovered from COVID-19, re-emerge. And he has said that the lockdown here in the UK is going to continue. But we've never had it as strict as you have had in Spain. But what there now seems to be some talk about is whether it's possible to have these sort of what is being termed personal bubbles. And so, you know, a few family members, a few friends may be able to meet up. And I was just thinking how difficult that's going to be. Because, I mean, for example, how do I stop my four-year-old child from hugging her grandmother? Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. she she's going to do it naturally, immediately, if we met up with her grandparents. So I think there's still clearly a lot of hurdles to overcome as to, you know, how we continue 
life on the outside once the, the lockdown measures are eased in various different countries. Right. It's not just that. It's also contending with the geography of many regions. Uh, I was reading a report, and in fact, 65% of sidewalks in Madrid aren't wide enough to allow for these social distancing measures, according to analysts. So we have this card shuffle every time people are walking with their children down the streets. So the question of social distancing and what that looks like from a geographic standpoint and also from an interpersonal standpoint when you have families together, yeah, it's something we're, we're going to have to sort of work out as we move forward and balance that with uh, tracking the numbers as the risk increases, um, you know, two weeks later, as we monitor the caseload and what that looks like and how what moves the, the politicians make. It's interesting that you mentioned that the sidewalks that we we would call the the footpaths. I have seen that in London, the mayor of London has been saying that they're putting um, markings down on the ground outside bus stops so that people know. And I also heard about some local shops uh, near where my parents live saying that they are now requesting some markings on the roads so that the footpaths can almost be extended into the road so that when people are queuing outside shops, they have somewhere to stand in the road, which gives them that space apart from people who are walking by. So there's all these different things that need to be considered. But it must have been great being able to get your, your child out of your apartment and into the fresh air, Linda. It was amazing. And, and the fact is, the real takeaway, he slept beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Big bonus. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I guess, Linda, there is another major bonus of being able to take children outside in Spain, seeing as they've been inside for so long. There's been a lot of talk here, certainly, about the importance of vitamin D. Public Health England has recommended that people consider taking vitamin D supplements throughout the the spring and the summer as the lockdown continues. And I hadn't actually realised until I looked into this that they're also recommending that for those who are shielding, staying in for 12 weeks. And I guess the big concern is about making sure children get their vitamin D. I had actually bought some vitamin D spray, so maybe I should be taking it myself. Yeah, uh, during these six and a half weeks of lockdown, when our son wasn't able to go outside at all, we would open our window as wide as possible and try to keep him there within the sun's uh, field of uh, field of impact. We would open our window and try to keep him there for as long as possible so he could soak up a little bit of sunlight. We did start taking vitamin D supplementation in the form of drops for children, um, and and now a lot of parent friends, uh, myself included, we're opting to take our children out when the sun is the highest, just to make sure that absorption is, is strongest. Heather Martin, a registered dietitian living in central Texas and a mother of two kids, spoke to us further about things to consider with vitamin D supplementation and how to make sure your kids and your entire family are staying healthy. Vitamin D is an important micronutrient for everyone. Uh, older adults are more likely to be deficient because as we age, our bodies get less efficient at using the sun to convert vitamin D to its active form. 
but children can also be at risk of low vitamin D. It's pretty common in the pediatric population, especially right now when they might not be able to go outside as much as usual. So other than the sun, the way uh, to get vitamin D is either through your diet or through supplementation. There are just a few foods that are good sources of vitamin D. One of the main ones is fatty fish. A serving of something like salmon will have uh, roughly the amount of vitamin D that a child would need in a day. Other sources of vitamin D are things like egg yolks. Eggs have sort of a negative reputation that they don't deserve. Um, they, they don't contribute to serum cholesterol as much as we used to think according to newer research. So um, a few egg yolks a week is uh, completely fine for most people. And then fortified foods like dairy that says it's fortified with vitamin D. Some orange juices are fortified with vitamin D and a few breakfast cereals. But you need to take a look at the label. You can't assume that all dairy foods have vitamin D added. Plant-based dairy milks will typically be fortified with vitamin D and calcium, but you do need to take a look at the label and make sure. Uh, One last thing is beef liver. Not too many people uh, will eat that, especially children may turn up their noses. And that's why supplementation is commonly recommended. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics recommends 400 international units uh, supplementation for children who are not meeting that amount through their diet. Uh, if, if a child is getting less than 400 international units of vitamin D through their diet per day, it's typically suggested that they supplement. We, we don't know whether supplementation is as effective as dietary and sun-related vitamin D production, but It appears to be helpful, um, and it's thought to be prudent, so that's why supplementation is typically recommended for kids who are not getting enough. And it is an important thing to pay attention to. It's a good idea to discuss your diet and your individual needs um, with your doctor or with your child's doctor. This is The Checkpoint Podcast. And we're very glad you're with us. We want to let you know that coming up in this episode, we're going to be discussing an issue we feel is important under the current circumstances of the lockdown, wherever you are in the world. And if talking about it helps just one woman, one mother, then we've done our job. But we want to note that this episode from here on contains descriptions of domestic abuse that some may find disturbing. So if you want to avoid this content, we understand. Yes, and you can rejoin us next week when we talk about different aspects of parenting in a pandemic. What do you do if you and your children are in lockdown because of the global pandemic and that lockdown is with an abusive partner? It is, unfortunately for some, a reality. Here in the UK, there's been a research project that has calculated that in the first three weeks of the lockdown, there were 16 domestic abuse killings, including 14 women and two children. It's the highest figures in 11 years. And according to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, calls and online requests for help 
have increased by some 49%. Oh, wow. Those numbers are very high. You know, according to the CDC, one in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate partner in their lives. And this isn't taking into account global lockdowns. And the lockdown across the globe has definitely increased this risk. In terms of what this might look like during a pandemic, uh, according to those fielding calls in the U.S. for the National Domestic Violence Hotline, they actually reported that the most common calls feature the following. Uh, abusers preventing healthcare workers or other essential employees from going to work. They're either saying the person is purposely trying to infect them with COVID-19 by going to work, or they see it as an opportunity for the person to lose their job to gain financial control. Some abusers are also preventing victims from taking preventative measures as a way of exerting power. So tactics like restricting hand sanitizer, soap, or access to the shower. It's interesting, Linda, that the United Nations has also mentioned this. They have warned that women in smaller homes and those in poorer countries are likely to have fewer ways to report abuse. Now, here at the Checkpoint podcast, we have reached out to one refuge centre here in the UK. Jamie Richards is the Development and Funding Officer at Coventry Haven Women's Aid. She is herself a survivor of domestic abuse. Now, she has been monitoring the response that they have been getting. And she says that when lockdown started, they were really worried about a drop in contact. Initially, it was really quiet. Literally overnight, it went very, very quiet. And we were, we are really worried about the women in, in lockdown at the moment. Now, they're isolated enough as it is without um, having lockdown and being in lockdown with their abuser or their abusers. But that, that has, we're pleased to say, it's picked up again. And we've also instated online chat as a bit of a pilot to see if that's a, an easier method for women to contact us on, um, as opposed to trying to find a quiet space when the abuser's there to make a phone call. That's just very, very difficult. And the difficult situations that they're in, it is really, really hard. As, apart from the abuser being there, uh, even if the abuser's not there and, and you know they're able to work, the children are still home, so they can't reach out for support. They can't talk in front of the children. Again, it's having that space, that safe space for action. As I say, there's the online chat, there's uh, enough information on the website. It, and I really must stress, it's as much information as, as they could gain while they're in lockdown um, or at any time. Knowledge is power. Um, it makes you realise that it's not your fault. You're not to blame for any of it. It's never justified because quite often I'm a survivor myself. So um, they will justify what they're doing to you. They gaslight you, they love bomb you. Um, and it just goes round and round to the point where you're in a constant state of confusion. Um, you don't know right from wrong, more or less what your name is at times. It's, it is extremely hard. Again, with uh, the, the schools being closed, there's extra pressures. There's, there is quite likely to be less money coming in it's kind of like Christmas Christmas is always a peak time for us but this is like a permanent Christmas now that's been going on for four weeks keep in touch with people 
your friends and their response, friends, family, work colleagues, anybody is crucial to um, ensuring that your risk stays uh, manageable for you. Um, people come from a, a nice place. They try to support you, but their responses can kind of make you believe what the perpetrator's saying. Remember that you're in an abusive relationship and 24-7 you're being told what you can and can't do to the point of it may be eating, sleeping, what you're wearing, how your hair is, whether you wear makeup and who you see. That's very common. And if they try to dip their toe in the water to see what response you'd get, and if that response is along the lines of, well, all you need to do is, and then some advice, or you need to leave him now, you can come and stay at my house, we have a spare room, blah, 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 we'll go and get the things now. Well, if it was me, I would just... All of those things are actually blaming the victim. They're pushing her and telling her what she should do, which is what the abuser does. Um, so the positive responses are really, really important that people can give. And that could be your best friend that you've known forever, your sister, your mom. Um, if they say you need to do this, this and this, it will close the victim down and Generally, you wouldn't discuss that with them. You, you can't, there's lots of stages that you go through when you're trying to um, find somebody who's uh, trusted enough to um, help you and understand because what you want to do is speak to somebody who's not going to tell you what to do, who's not going to judge you or blame you. And like I say, these things come from a, a kind heart. They think they're helping, but they're not. And also the perpetrator will use those things against the victim again so say for example parents are desperately trying to get their daughter away from a perpetrator and the perpetrator will be saying things along the lines of um i told you your mum and dad don't like me they they don't want me around and um, they hate me and that just escalates and almost because of the behavior of the mum and dad it's easier for the victim to just stay away um because uh, she's managing her risk and safety and by not seeing them is um, appeasing the abuser and that's part of the isolation. Um, another thing I'd say is keep a diary. There's lots of times where you won't want to write in it, but as much as you possibly can and as much as you can backfill, that kind of helps you know that you're not going crazy. Another thing that they do, the whole gaslighting thing, is um, making you feel like they didn't say what they said, they didn't move that thing to that place, it's your fault and all of that. But a diary makes you focus, but it needs to be kept in a, a safe place. Um, there's other things like uh, trusted people can maybe have post delivered if you're dealing with uh, any legal services about any civil or criminal process. They could use their address as a point of address as a safe place. There's things that we wouldn't want to put out there, really, because we don't want the perpetrators to hear things. It's that fine line. I think it's really chilling, Linda, to hear her say that this is like a permanent Christmas and... It's also interesting to hear how key it is about communication, the words that we use, the way people who, in fact, are trying to help might not necessarily be helping. You know, Anna, Jamie brings up a really interesting point regarding the difficulties of getting support when you're home with an abuser. Chat services and email can be that more stealthy way to communicate. And I definitely think that expansion is, is really important during this period you know, in a recent post to a parents group that I'm on, one really kind mom wrote, 
okay, if you privately message me to ask me about my chocolate cake recipe, anyone in this group, I'll know that that's your cue. You're telling me you need support or you're in danger. You don't feel safe. So having those type of code words established can be quite helpful. When we were talking to Jamie, she has lived through and survived her own experience of domestic abuse. Although it was not during this pandemic, she says that she can really relate because we talk about this lockdown, but she says, in effect, what she went through was a lockdown because she was held against her will. She has shared her story with us. It is a detailed and quite emotional one. But as she said, if it helps one woman listening to this during this global pandemic, then she's done the right thing. I'm very independent, fiercely independent. And this guy completely swept me off my feet. It was very intense. It was very romantic. Lots of things that were, uh, and that's the, the point, the grooming period and the coercive control comes across as nice gestures, romantic gestures, nothing that you'd actually turn around and say, hold on a minute, stop, I don't want that. And then before I knew it, he'd moved in. It was my house, my car, I had a disposable income, a, a, a good job. And this was quite, <laughs> quite different for me. But um, if you'd have asked me the day before the first physical incident, was I frightened of him? I would have said no. But it was at that particular moment that I realised as I picked myself up off the floor just how scared I was of, of him and how much control he'd got over me. Even though I was as independent as I was beforehand, um, he still groomed me. And what they do, they push and push to see how far they can push you and you'll still go along with things. And and like I say, it's it's not always awful things, nasty things, violent things. But he um, attacked me in the street, came running up behind me and it was in front of uh, it was a gorgeous sunny day in June. And he he did that in front of about 40 or 50 people sat in the beer garden out the front of the, the pub that was across the road that I was walking past. I picked myself up, didn't have a clue what was going on, didn't understand what at all had just happened and was so embarrassed and humiliated when I saw all the people watching that I turned and walked up through the... Uh, the fields that were uh, at the back of my house and went that way round, which was the worst thing I could do because it escalated, but then it escalated from that day forward anyway. He was a butcher, so he used to use knives, so that was his speciality with me as well. Constant threats. There was five different occasions, there's probably more than that if I sat and thought about it, um, but five that stick in my mind where I genuinely thought I'm going to die right now. And... There wasn't lots of sorries, but there's lots of justification as to why he did what he did. Um, it was always my fault. Um, I could never uh, know what was going to trigger him. It could be that we were sat quietly watching TV and there could be uh, a man on the TV or they were discussing something and he would be controlling my thoughts uh, to the point where I would try and justify, you know, that that wasn't the case, that wasn't the case, but he would assume that it was. It could be the music, the lyrics of a song on the radio. Um, I've been stamped on, beaten lots of times, uh, woken with a baseball bat. He used to hold my arm out after constantly sharpening the knives with a steel, um, and that makes my 
hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I hear that now. But he would hold my arm out while staring straight at me and the tiny hairs on, on your arm, he would show me, prove to me how sharp the knife was by um, just slowly uh, cutting the hairs on my arm. And that was all intimidation. It didn't actually hurt. It was just the intimidation. He'd do that regularly. Kept me in the house, um, dragged me across the floor by my hair. He's throwing food. I've been out with him and two fellas uh, that I knew from work vaguely. I knew to say hello to. That was it. They they said hello as they walked past. And then that was it. I was frog marched back to the car. And that caused me a couple of days of incidents. He's dragged me across the floor, tied me to the towel rail in the bathroom, locked the door, um, kept me in there for some time. And there's also lots of mind games that goes on with regards to things that he knows were very personal to me, uh, things that my dad had bought me that meant a lot. He was trying to uh, damage those. He filled the bath with water and was, was putting the things in there um, while I was tied up by my hands and uh, wrists and ankles um lots of things and i could never i never could figure out what that unwritten rule book was uh one week i could say or do something and it wouldn't trigger anything the next week i could do or say exactly the same thing and it would and all of the information that they glean from you during that grooming period and all that coercive control that's going on and you really feel like you've met your soulmate, that he understands everything about you. He, he really can get inside your head. Uh, but what is actually happening is he's gleaning all of that information to, to use against you at a later date. So, for example, if you've told him things about maybe your best friend or something that's happened to you personally that you've you know not shared um, or something about your mum or your dad or anything like that, your best friend, any, anybody... They use that as uh, ammunition later down the line. It also took me 18 months to uh, get myself to a place where I thought I could get him arrested. So I worked with the police. Um, never had any involvement with the police before that. Worked really closely with them and went to huge lengths to that on the day of arrest I'd have everything in place ready I'd got the locksmith due to to arrive uh, if something was in the window that would mean he wouldn't come to the door because on that morning if um, anything had changed that he felt wasn't right and he'd, he'd not have gone to work it would have uh, scuppered all of my plans he was arrested and they bailed him and he got back to me immediately he was phoning my mum my landline um and my mobile. The police went to arrest him the following day to remand him for breaching and he ran. So for the next week or so he was missing. Um, so I didn't leave the house. They found him and, and he was on remand for four months. Uh, during that period of time, the eighth hearing, he uh, was bailed with very strict conditions. And uh, one evening, uh, three o'clock in the morning, the dog used to go out. The lights come on, I'd had extra lights put in. The lights come on in the garden and um, I couldn't see. It was obscure glass in my door. Uh, the blinds were down, so I kind of opened the door a few inches and pushed the dog out and then shut the door and locked it again. I opened the door, the door forced open and there he was. Um, he'd 
uh, fence jumped into my garden and had waited in my garage for nine hours, knowing that at some point during the night the dog would need to go out for the toilet. I thought, this is it. This is one of those times where I thought, this is definitely, I'm going to die now. And if anybody asks me, why didn't you just leave? It's like, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, I always answer that with a question and ask, have you ever been in a situation where you thought you were going to die right now? And I've not had anybody say yes, apart from other survivors. And that is why you stay. Um, it escalated from there. Um, he's served his time. Um, he was given just over 18 months and he'd already served four months of that in on remand, so he, he had very little um, time in jail. Um, he's out now. I'm very aware of uh, not to go. Um, as brave as I've been uh, since working for Coventry Haven, um, I still wouldn't do anything that would uh, turn him up on my doorstep again. Um, if it wasn't for Coventry Haven, I wouldn't be here. That was because during the... Um, second breach when he was with me for another four months um, and the uh, violence had escalated and every, the control had escalated even further if it possibly could. Um, I felt that there was absolutely no way out and I did actually try to kill myself because um, I believed that at least I would have control over that um, and it wouldn't be as brutal as what he was telling me he was going to do. Um, so... That was something that I did that I'm not very proud of and obviously I'm glad that it didn't work. Um, but that was exactly how I felt, that there was no other way out. But he used to tell me he was going to um, chop me up, which he could possibly you know, easily do because of his profession, um, put me into bin bags and he was going to uh, hide me behind the police station, which he thought was hilarious. Uh, it always makes me think, and I'm, when I look at it, um, I probably wouldn't have been found, to be honest. It's so dense, but but there you go. Um, I just try and, trying to make the message or get the message across that um, the things that they do and say are extremely um, frightening and it is very, very difficult for a victim to leave. But please, if anyone um, is being subjected to any of this and it doesn't have to include the violence, the control, the fear of violence is sometimes worse than the actual violence. I'm really touched by how brave Jamie has been in sharing that story. And for many of you who are listening, who might be going through something similar, uh, we do have some information on Facebook under the Checkpoint podcast. Uh, you can take a look if you'd like. Um, it just has links to various hotlines as well as chat options across the globe, in Spain, the United States, in the UK, just to have some options to consider if you feel like reaching out. Please do check out the Facebook page where we will share those links for any help if you're in a situation where you need it. It's been a bit of a different episode this week. We've talked about a very sensitive subject and we've heard quite an incredible testimony. We hope that in some way, what we've discussed today may help even just one woman who's going through this. And if we don't say it enough, we're really glad you're here with us, a part of this community. You can always email us at mycheckpointpodcast at gmail.com to share any thoughts, impressions, 
or if there's a topic that you would like us to explore uh, from the difficult to the lighter of subjects. We're here for you. We're definitely eager to dive in uh, as we go through this lockdown together. But for now, from me, Anna, in London, stay safe. And me, Linda, in Barcelona, wash those hands, especially uh, your kids if you're in Spain. Wash those kiddos' hands now. (laughs) 